Hello, and welcome back to uh, some sort of Wine Grant's Open Door Philanthropy hybrid podcast episode with uh, my special guest, Ian Fisk. Normally, uh, on Wine Grant's, we drank uh, wine, uh, but since the last episode of Wine Grant's, we've been very lucky uh, uh, from our generous friends at the Lagunitas Brewing Company have supplied some delicious IPAs for us to drink. So I'm here with Ian Fisk of the Mentor Capital Network. Drinking uh, delicious Lagunitas IPA. Welcome to this booth, Ian. So when you do these podcasts, do you actually give your guests beer occasionally, or do you just keep ordering it all for yourself? Yeah, well, the the, the implication is that the guest is also drinking, but but few, but uh, close fans of the podcast will know that the majority of alcohol has been drank by me. We actually have done a couple. We did a few episodes with folks who don't drink, but who didn't necessarily want the world to know that they don't drink. So, and since it's just a podcast, it's just audio, it's very easy to simulate drinking. <laughs> so we've had folks sipping water, yeah, clicking sounds and stuff. Uh, we are both actually drinking uh, beer today. Uh, we, did, we did one episode, uh, Russ Finkelstein, one of the guys behind Idealist, does not drink. Uh, and so we had fancy sodas, I forget what kind, but we went, we got very fancy gourmet sodas. Um, and well, we drank one, one of my first uh, contributions to the world of mass media and social enterprise was in the mid-90s when Ashoka announced their fellow list and I had to point out that it was Mr. Amidar of Idealist because they had listed him as Ms. Ms.? Is there, I, I guess it's probably some female Amis. Uh, Ami, uh, Ami, so it ends in <laughs> I, so in some cultures that's going to be... Oh, it's like Amy. Yeah. That's what they thought. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, good for you for... Uh, Captain Eagle Eye, Ian Fisk over here. Well, you know, because I'm, I'm the guy who built ServNet and which would have been idealist, except Ami did it earlier and better, so he beat us to the punch. But Good I wish you for admitting will, that. And I'm not you know, <laughs> bitter at all. Uh, I've, I've heard of, I, I didn't realize, it, I think I've heard of ServNet, right? Is that something I, might, I would have uh, so it, heard from, of? So from uh, the mid-90s to the late aughts, uh, it was put in your zip code, this is where you can volunteer. Yeah. It was started by Youth Service America and was okay, a partnership, yes. and it was one of the first... That and Idealist were one of the, really the first online platforms. Yeah, back when I had a job that uh, I could explain to my mother in under 30 seconds, I was a database programmer, so I was the first internet coordinator of U.S. presidential campaign. I wrote one of the one of the first two, tell me where you live and I'll tell you where you can volunteer, and I wrote hmm. the database that uh, told, you, told Congress where all the American members were and what kind of service they were doing and why they shouldn't defund them. Oh, terrific. Right, that wasn't officially the last reason, but it was practically. Well, I think uh, for a while there, AmeriCorps funding was uh, in pretty good shape, largely because of, I think at the moment, probably not. Uh, no, but that's thing. a whole separate discussion. But I know that you guys did a very good job, you and others did a very good job of like proving the value of funding AmeriCorps. There was like, and it's very easy to make it seem like it's not like, well, why would we pay them to volunteer, right? I remember that's the like, mm -hmm. the obvious thing that like people who don't know what they're talking about can say uh, about that. We're not, and pay someone is different than like receive a living stipend. Right, based on the cost of living in your area. And the way that this does <laughs> tie into the work that we both do is AmeriCorps is a long-term game. Yeah, they if all you they, create they stay in a resource for a community that people know that they can use and leverage. One year, it's an expensive thing. But if you've got it ongoing and you've got partnerships, you know, places like Public Allies and City Year and YSA, all of which I used to work at back before I turned to the capitalism side of things, uh, they've made huge differences because they stay in a community mm -hmm. and because their partners know that they can work with them over time. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's uh, one of the things I found. And so I spent the first half of my career working with youth service organizations, working on the 501c3. So did you work events. at YSA? With I, I worked at YSA. I worked oh. at Public Allies. I worked at City Year. I worked at... Uh, so that's how I know about certain... We, I never worked for YSA. We sublet. I was... Uh, he was my land, Steve was my landlord. When we were uh, Naira, we had a very small room, similar to the booth we are in now, uh, that we worked in in the back. One of the things about being the computer guy is you always get the biggest room. <laughs> Even <laughs> when they don't have to put the computers in it, which the people who work with me didn't quite understand. Like, they got it when I had racks of servers in the room, but they didn't understand it when I didn't until they realized that being the computer guy meant that I was in charge of everything that uh, around the organization that didn't involve talking to a live human being. Um, so I got to pick offices. Well, they do, uh, YSA has quite a bit going on on the computer end and stuff, like the number of programs, a lot of applications that they process, uh, things of that sort. A great organization, one of the better... Um, if you're a young person looking to do a project in your community, that's, that's they give you real money to do it. I um, think there should be a lot more of that sort of thing. Eventually, uh, you found something that used to be called uh, the William James Foundation. Uh, sort of. So the William James Foundation was founded by John Nelson and Chuck Dell in 2002. Okay. And John, uh, John and I worked together at a group called Wall Street Without Walls, which is like Doctors Without Borders, but for investment bankers. So we would recruit senior and retired financial executives uh, to do complicated financial things like write the first bond where you could make it cheaper to build something lead or do a lot of foreclosure mitigation stuff, like a lot of the complex economic, high-end economic development Yeah, stuff. and Wall Street guys are great to help with that. Uh, well, Assuming they, you could they find caused them. the problems in the first case. So it was, it was a, it that was, was a, my charitable way of saying they're yeah. great, they're well, great I mean, to help with Many that. of them are perfectly decent. The person who caused the problem them, yeah, is many, often great to help with solving. Many of them are perfectly decent human beings. But, uh, yeah, you know, there's definitely good, like Wall Street's big, there's a lot of people who work there, a lot of them are very good people doing good in the uh, world. Um, <laughs> but, and it's mostly these days in North Carolina, but that's a separate issue. Um, the um, commercial banking, anyways, is not so much in New York anymore. Yes. But I knew John through that, and then Chuck... Uh, when I met him, was 82. He was still alive, but he's still with us. He's 99. Is he Chuck Dell? Is that like the, that's not no, Dell, like not the, the computers? Because computer. that's... Uh, so Chuck Dell had been... Uh, so we'll tie this back to... to that's uh, Michael. We'll tie this back to AmeriCorps. Uh, do you know what the Civilian Conservation Corps was? Yeah, I've heard so of that. So in the 30s, uh, they came up with these work camps. Uh, some for the black, some for the white. Um, because... They were segregated. Because in the 1930s. 1930s. Uh, and, but all for the working poor. Uh, so for what we would call we, what we would call the working poor. Um, I think we still call them. Yeah, I think we still call them the working poor. <laughs> not generally to their faces unless we are them, but, you know. Um, oh, are you working poor? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I'm a federal employee. Yeah. Um, mm. But, um, and most of them were, there were, but one was funded to be an experiment much like today's city year and public allies programs and AmeriCorps programs. Today's AmeriCorps programs tend to be folks who are both rich and poor, but very few people in the middle. It's people who can live on twelve to $15,000 a year because they know how, or people who can live on twelve to $15,000 a year because it doesn't matter, yeah. but it's not a lot of people who need thirty dollars to $40,000 a year, right? Right. Um, and so... They tend to have debts and stuff. Yeah. Need, that need is very right. real. So, uh, and uh, student loan stuff is mitigated in AmeriCorps. But uh, that's a whole other story. Right, there's the education grant yeah. at the end, I, I think. But in Civilian Conservation Corps, there was one camp that was socioeconomically mixed. And so they had uh, the working poor, and they had uh, folks from, for example, Dartmouth, where Charles Dell attended. 
and to good he school. went to Camp William James in 1940. Camp William James. Camp William James, where he learned about the philosophy of William James, who is the brother of Henry James, the novelist who returned of his crew. William James is essentially the guy who brought the study of comparative religion to the United States. And hmm. one of his more famous philosophical passages says, service is the moral equivalent of war. Now, this is on its face, needs context. Uh, but what he meant was he came of age during the American Civil War. And, when you, and, and the way you served your country during the American Civil War was that you carried a gun. And Professor Dr. William James was under the impression that there should be other ways to serve your country than carrying a gun, that you should be able to be of service beyond the traditional... Unarmed of service? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but he's... Well, he's <laughs> I'm not, dubious. Yeah, he's not talking military. <laughs> he's talking about what we would think of as volunteering. Yeah, no, beyond that, I don't, right. I don't and, take my dress out without my, without my piece. Uh, <laughs> no, since I moved to... D D.C. is very difficult to get your registration, and I have not been on since I moved here 12 years ago. Yeah, I uh, was good friends with a guy who had the last privately issued handgun permit. Um, so here? he died that 10 years ago. Oh, you, really? You can't be a private citizen with a concealed weapon. I think there's 500 permits or something like that, like total. Uh, and one of the things that we took from the philosophy of William James is you can be in, in service three ways. On top of your job, instead of your job, or through your job. So on top of your job is in the U.S. how it mostly goes. We go to work, we go to work 40, 50 hours a week, and then we volunteer at our church or at our park or in our local whatever. Um, and that's great, but that's a luxury. Like the ability to have the time for which you're not getting paid and you're not spending raising your kids or with your family is wonderful, but it's not something everybody has. Then there's volunteering instead of your job. There's some people who are either wealthy enough or devout enough that they don't have to work or that they are monks or what have you, and that they are completely of service. And this is great. This is also a luxury. So Some workplaces give people days off. Some. Would you count that as? That would be. So we'll, we'll get to that. So the third is working free is being of service through your job. Oh, okay. So we work with entrepreneurs, much like you work with folks who are starting and growing nonprofits. And the entrepreneurs themselves are going to do this work no matter what. Those folks are yep. already lost to the cause. They're already whacked out. They're funding or not? Yeah. Uh, until <laughs> they, until, until they have to without, pay rent some other do way. Without yeah. The funding, yeah. Uh, but if we can help people be more successful and employ more people. All the folks they employ are folks who get to be of service to their communities while making a, a, a salary, and then go home to their families and go home to and like have the time to lead a full life. And so, well, this isn't so. Sounds this, lovely. This comes out of the philosophy of William James. However, a couple of years into running the William James Foundation, which is an operating foundation, which yes, I was going Listeners you're predicting this, all of my questions. Yeah, listeners to this podcast are presumably somewhat familiar with how foundation. Once they heard you ran the William James Foundation, they were people were looking it up and like trying to apply for grants from yeah. you and everything, which I assume so was. So there is, issue. there are at least three other William James Foundations <laughs> because it's a common name, and we got permission from the folks who have the actual, who are the, who have the, the descendants of the families of yeah. the Jameses. Uh, yeah, who and must live in New England. Uh, California, actually, it turns out. Oh, so um, not yet. Although, yeah, though, any, the only people who ever knew who William Via James is. New England. Yeah, they were, they were <laughs> and, and they're ministers. Like, anytime I go to a, 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 a conference <laughs> yeah, with, like, yes. SoCap Soul or any sort of faith-based thing, they automatically, William James is a better name. Anywhere else, people are like, who? I'm like, 
Um, are you? Yeah, he called Mr. James. I'm like, he's been dead for a century, but that was good. <laughs> Mr. James. Um, uh, <laughs> I had to get rid of the word foundation because I was tired of being in the middle of a conversation with a potential funder and having to explain, no, I'm asking you for money. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, um, and what we've been doing is providing what we call mentor capital, which is our play on intellectual capital. We support for-profit social enterprises who have built their social, environmental, or cultural goals into how they make money in a variety of ways that we'll talk about presumably in a couple minutes. And we connect them to mentors and advisors. We give them access to peers and mentors who have been through the same challenges. And so we call this Mentor Capital. So we changed our name to the Mentor Capital Network. Uh, turns out there is an organization out there called Mentor Capital. They just invest in marijuana companies. Um, really? I, I taught a storytelling class to the Why wife of their... Mentor? No clue. But I just taught a storytelling class to the wife of their board chair at Burning Man, so they now know who we are. So we are, we are advised by our lawyers to never work with or support any company in the marijuana industry. That is our, our, our one limitation industry-wise. Big, uh, potentially big industry in the coming years. Yes, it's kind and of potentially a lot of folks doing sustainable work, but for various legal reasons, uh, they've been around longer than us and have more money and presumably more expensive lawyers. So we'll stay clear. And they got the word capital in their name? Yeah. Which is usually a sign, yeah. uh, although not necessarily in your case. But intellectual capital. You, you, do have, you, have, you are replete with intellectual capital. Yeah. Uh, I, but when it comes to like staffing up lawyers for your lawsuit, right? they, they tend to not accept that. Thomson Reuters does excellent pro bono work for pretty yes. much any nonprofit or social enterprise out there in the world, and they, in fact, have country-based folks. But you don't really want to engage them over time. It's more uh, specific. Well, there would be, right, if, if some instance, right, you support some sort of social justice marijuana entrepreneur with, like, intellectual capital, and you get sued by these, like, marijuana investors. I'm just going to avoid I the subject. There's probably a lawyer out there that would help you pro bono. Yeah, her name is Laura Pearson, but... Um, <laughs> I'm just going to stay clear of it. Uh, yeah, no, I think be, I think you'll be fine. Uh, it's, I mean, the, uh, although uh, big, exciting industry, uh, although not while we're here in the booth uh, uh, to talk about. We will reach the topic of this conversation <laughs> in the next 30 to 60 minutes. This is like that Windows file when you're downloading it. It might be yes. two minutes. It might be 40 minutes. If you are, uh, when I can edit this later, maybe, sometimes I do put the last thing we talk about at the end, uh, but probably not today. Uh, so the uh, right, so the, these are folks uh, like, you, like you say, entrepreneurs uh, who are they're seeking investment funds for their business. Some of them. Some of them. So uh, yes, I'm being recorded, so I'll say uh as often as possible. <laughs> snap, edit, snap. <laughs> um, so I am looking for ideas that scale. If the company wants to stay lifestyle business. That's fine with me. What we have over the 15 years we've been operating gotten good at is helping people pass what I call the charisma limit, which hmm. is to say that a lot of social entrepreneurs can sell their product or service to people who believe in them or who believe in their cause, which is good. It's a fine way to start. But then eventually you reach the point where if you're a business and you want to get bigger, you have to solve a pain point for a price point. Like that's the definition of a business is you solve a pain point for a price point, right? Like you, 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 you address an issue and people give you money for it. Yeah. 
I like that. And so I call it solving problems with money. Yeah. At some point, you do have yeah. to. Yes. And uh, I mean, you could just solve a pain point with by using violence to take something from somebody else, but that's um, yeah. Less transactional. You can only do the. Is that sustainable? Is that sustainable? Eventually, yeah. it'll yeah. be a problem. Yeah, you run, yeah. <laughs> so um, you'll find someone bigger than you. Um. Anyways, uh, so we have folks who've gotten past that barrier, and we help. We use those folks to advise the next generation. And my next generation, I do not necessarily mean younger people. Well, on average, Older our start mentors. All the time. Yeah. Well, particularly in the uh, we're in the. I mean, we're, we've worked folks all. Folks, uh, we have worked with individuals in more than 90 countries around the world. But you get a lot of encore careers. You get a lot of folks who work 20, 30 years, they retire, and then they do what they really wanted to do now that they have a retirement income. Mm -hmm. I was meant to do that, but then I got it. <laughs> it sounds nice, right? Retirement income. Um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, we've had, we've had applications from, from folks in their 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, all of the... Yeah. Area. I look forward to my first application from somebody in their 90s. I think maybe I'm I mean, folks are living longer, right? They can have a good, long career, build up the capital. I often talk to my, particularly the folks that aren't planning on returning funding to investors, right? They're going to run their program off of philanthropic capital. Uh, I tell them that in order to get that off the ground, you have to find some, what I say is you have to find some sort of creative way to cheat, right? Uh, so for me, the way that I cheat is that I was born into a moderately wealthy family, uh, and I was able to work for several years not making a salary. If it weren't for that, I'm fine. This doesn't would not exist. I wouldn't have not. I wouldn't have been able to. If I had student loan debt, right, and credit card debt, and the vehicle I was paying for, and I had to pay, make my mortgage and stuff, right, it absolutely would not. Or I would have had to do it differently. I would have had to compromise a lot more. I wouldn't have worked. Right. Uh, another way to cheat might be to like have a career in Wall Street first, make a ton of money, and then start. Your or even a moderate amount of money. Be a federal worker at a GS twelve sure. for twenty years. Yes. Or a military without, you know, and then you, you rise to a mid-officer. You don't pension. necessarily generally get a pension. and you'd be a, you'd be a cop for 20 years. Right, yeah. You get a pension. Uh, Scott Beal at Atlas Core, he used to say, if you're going to be a, so a social entrepreneur, uh, my the best piece of advice I can give to you is to have a wife with a job. Or a husband. <laughs> or a husband with a job. In my case, I uh, is also very... Although, of course, we both know that Scott essentially lives... We're not going to go there about somebody else. He's extremely lucky his, in his the wife department. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, well, her personal and professional qualities are Well, that's are been, awesome. no, and he's, I mean, it's a funny thing to say, but it's also very accurate as to why, I mean, that's a big part of the reason why Courtney works very hard at the State Department and makes, brings the salary home, which allowed, right, Scott And it's to, a stable it's, salary. It's yes. not so much the question of size as. Yes, and they, they knew that, yeah, she, they knew that she wasn't going to be, that she's going to be staying in that job. They're going to be keeping that there and everything, and, and that worked out. In my case, right, I uh, around the time I was founding uh, this nonprofit, my mother uh, was retiring from Duke University, right, and so having a like retiring uh, mom with a, with a Roth IRA that she can draw out of has been has been another way that I that I cheat, right. And so all these folks have to find some sort of so, way. To, so you want to know my cheat? Let's see. Yes. My mother was an accountant, and my handwriting is awful. <laughs> so I am 50 years old, and I'm digitally native. Mm -hmm. Think about that for a second. I grew up in the 70s, and I'm digitally native. Must be one of the oldest ones. Uh, yeah. So. Not that many. I mean, a, so, I think, you know a guy named John Gilmore? He registered, like, the fourth domain ever. It was toad.net, I think. A good friend of mine was in the room when they came he up. He goes to SoCap a lot. I thought uh, maybe you might have met my, him. My good friend Mitra was in the room when they came up with the concept of URLs. I'm not quite that far back. But what I was was my mother, as an accountant who worked at home part-time while she was raising kids, my dad was a teacher, 
uh, she, the very first people to have personal computers were accountants because a word processing is just a typewriter where you can save the file. But spreadsheets replaced adding machines. It must have been some very primitive version of Excel or something. T uh, Visicalc, I think it was called. Was it Visicalc? So, so TRS-80 Model <laughs> 1, uh, you couldn't watch your public TV at the same time. One really doesn't know why. Uh, if you ever saw the movie War Games from the early 80s with Matthew Broderick, that's a TRS-80 so, Model 3. He, at one point, he pulled the phone, like the, the rotary yeah. phone off the, th off the hook. Oh, that's a coupler. And yeah. he plugs it into a thing. I've yeah. always, is that's called a coupler? Yeah. I have always wondered, what, like, is that a real thing? Yeah, it is. So it listens I've to the... I've used those, yeah. Wow. That's... Um, do you ever read Hacker 2600? No, I think so. Is it a book or something? It's a magazine based on the concept that if you can replicate 2600 megahertz, you can get free payphone calls. For those of you under 35 in the audience, we'll explain <laughs> what payphones are in a later podcast. Um, the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I had a personal computer in the house when I was third grade, whatever, and my handwriting was so awful that, that my teachers assumed that I was not the stupidest kid in the room, but they really had no idea of telling, so I was forced to learn to type <laughs> on a computer in the mid-70s. So what that means is I had a 10-year head start on most of my friends. Now, um, in the early 90s, I was building things like ServNet, and friends of mine were building things like helping you trade stocks online. Of those friends, one of us is no longer retired. It's not me. Or one of us is, yeah, yeah everybody else is could be retired. Although one of them has tried to become a tomato farmer and now works harder than the rest of us put together. Tomato farm is difficult. Yeah, but that's my My his, tomatoes are terrible. That's entirely his choice. <laughs> so, Terry, if you're out there, that's your problem. Um, but... This they look good. My tails, they look like they're big and red, and then just you bite into it, and it's just styrofoam. Ah, well, well, Terry's out in Crozet, and he was one of the original coders for this. And um, well, Good uh, luck to him with yeah. his tomatoes. But uh, I'm, the, I'm the moron who left Silicon Valley in 1995 to come east for a computer job because, you know, San Jose, California, I was an Internet expert before there was the web, and I was like, yeah. There probably weren't jobs for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the point of this whole meandering story is that in the 90s, I could work two or three days a week at tech jobs and make a middle-class salary. So instead of working seven days a week at tech jobs and having a retirement fund, I chose to week two, use work two or three days a week and not loaf the other days right. of the week, but uh, help to build Hands on DC, help to build the DC Community Tool Chest, help to build a number of community organizations. Uh, did a lot of work for social, what was then called social enterprises, but were more in the nonprofit side, and did a lot of work that I essentially subsidized by being yeah, ahead of the curve enough. But unfortunately, it turns out that if you don't stick with the tech industry, you lose that advantage. And I now know as much about computers as the average 12 year old. Your ability to, say, to type is less yeah, impressive now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I know as much as the average twelve-year-old, which is to say, twice as much as the average thirty-year-old, <laughs> still, <laughs> but still not enough for a market advantage. Uh, yeah, uh, very interesting. Uh, and so uh, we have, um, uh, as we mentioned, very very similar program. The like, uh, the main difference would be, uh, to me anyway, uh, is that uh, I'm most interested in folks that aren't looking to uh, return money to investors. Uh, whereas the majority of your folks uh, are at least at least interested in the possibility of returning money to investors. Yes. Well, yeah, the majority are. We There's do take some companies to, that are many not. Many ways to discuss these differences, yeah. but th that's the main one to me. There are two other differences for now. 
Although, if I have my way <laughs> with uh, uh, convincing your team that we should be collecting data in the same way, listening, Margaret. Um, the uh, the um, the other two are reviewing business plans and providing feedback at the start of our program, mm -hmm. and then we have a very active process of connecting. So we use yeah. business plan reviews as a way for potential mentors and entrepreneurs to get to know each other. So people people volunteer for our program. You call them reviewers for you, on your side, right? I call them a lot of things, actually. I, reviewers, evaluators. Right. I go back and forth. Yeah, my marketing person said I had to call everybody mentors, and I pointed out that I needed four separate checkboxes for how they engage with the company because the difference matters. The marketing people want you to use the same word over and over and over again. I'm like, here's elements of style by E.B. White. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now we call them stylists. Right. Uh, so the four... Elements of Elements by E.B. White. Right. Because um, <laughs> it maximizes your SEO. Because right? people who are like Googling, I want a mentor, right? You need to use the word mentor as much as possible on your website. You can't call them anything else. I am unconcerned with SEO. I am far more interested in companies that I find rather than people who find me. But we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, there was a gathering of social enterprise incubators a couple years ago at what's now called Accelerating Accelerators, and there was like 40 of us in the room, and we listed all the different ways that we found the companies that we supported out of 128. 128 ways listed, 122 of them involved us going out rather than people coming to us. But My experience has been very similar. So the stages of our program look like this. Uh, folks apply, if accepted, they send in a business plan, and we'll build a team of 10 to 15 different people with diversity of perspective. Some of it's obvious, marketing, finance, operations, logistics. Some of it is people who are solving the same problem, but not competing for the same customer, because that's important in the for-profit side of things. Yep. You also have folks on the nonprofit side of things competing for the same funder, but it's not as heavy a thing. Competition's an issue, but way different. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we pretend it's co-opetition, and sometimes it is. Uh, so stage one. Co-opetition. Yeah. I've never heard that word, but Barry I like Nelba. it. Uh, Professor <laughs> Barry Nelba, co-founder of Honest Tea, is so cool. Um, so stage one is business plan review. Stage two is connecting them to mentors. So once we reviewed the business plan, and this looks a lot like your process, having been on Yeah, and I reviewed, yeah, I reviewed yeah, for your yeah. process, yeah. the, the whole thing. And it's, very, it's extremely similar. I'm yeah. like, as I was doing it, I was like, yeah, we do that, we do that, we do that. Yeah. We don't do this, and we will next time, because it's a good yeah. idea. <laughs> so, at the end of, so at the end of reviewing, you're given three options. You can say either, uh, I'm willing to sign my name and my email, and I'll do a one-time phone call if they want. I'm willing to sign my name and email, and I'm happy to be a mentor, or please leave me anonymous. Mm -hmm. We have to offer the anonymous option, but less than 10% of the people take it. Hmm. And so, um, about 60% check the one-time phone call, and about 30% uh, check the I want to be a mentor box. But it's up to the entrepreneur, based on the quality of your feedback, right? As an entrepreneur or as a nonprofit founder, People are always saying, you should talk to him and her and him and her and him and her and him and him and him and her and her. Depending on the industry, it might be more hims, more hers, doesn't matter. Um, Thems, theys? If you're in that industry, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Not a lot of them VCs, I guess. We're not there yet. So people are always told you should talk to so many people, and then an entrepreneur is like, I'm busy, I can't talk to 30 new people, I should be running my company. Unless they're not really an entrepreneur and they're just someone who's doing this because it's cool, in which case they just talk to as many people as they can and don't actually build their product or sell their service, and then there's a problem. 
So what we do is we give them feedback, and then they get to look at all the feedback. They send everyone a thank you note, or I have their heads. Uh, but then That's they, interesting. They reach out to the people that they find constructive. So an entrepreneur, this is dual opt-in. I studied OkCupid. Like, I studied dating sites for this because we are creating a mutually beneficial relationship, and we are super clear um, on when the two sides, how the two sides benefit from each other. Because we could have people swiping right, like, on the scramper, like, in the scramper mobile. Yeah. That's very, I've never, that's very, I, I, I think studying OkCupid was exactly the right thing. That's very, very smart. Um, and now I'm going to have to do it. Yeah, the guys. Because we, this is, this is very interesting for me. Because we, like, I think we've done a really good job of building the program where we provide the feedback reports are comprehensive. Mm -hmm. They're thick. They're extremely useful. And occasionally, the connections come from them. Right. I do a follow up. Call, I personally do a follow up call with each person, and then I connect them to the evaluators that like makes sense to be connected with, uh, which is uh, tedious and often I like fail to make connections that I should. We're trying to get uh, better at that sort of thing, uh, and a lot, uh, I'm going to borrow a decent number of ideas. And I'm happy to share them. One of the differences between two organizations, the difference between for-profit and non-profit, is I inherited, or was given by Chuck and John, remember them from 30 minutes ago, a business plan competition. Just a regular, like, we give prizes to the top interns. And I very quickly realized that the amount of resources going out from us was less than the amount of resources it took to apply. Right? 100 people applied, put in X number of hours. Mm -hmm. Those hours were not worth as much as the amount, or worth way more than the amount of money that was going out. Now, now you have other people funding, so hopefully that doesn't happen to you. So we said, all right, how else can we help? Like, what can we do? Because we've got people sending us their business plans. What can we do that would help? And so this is where we get to the stages. So stage one is you get feedback. You get an average of about 30 pages of feedback. Stage two is the you average, your, your average program? Total. Not per pages? person, but total, yeah. Well, it's 10 to 15 people. Yeah. I mean, we've done thirty page. Some of our reports are that long, but that's a good. That's if I get a high response rate, we're, we're evaluating. Yeah, uh, it's, it's. I mean, if I do if I do a giant round and it's like. I honestly, I probably wouldn't want to give somebody more than that thirty pages of feedback slash abuse. Uh, yeah, that's an issue we have. Um, two is you get connected to a mentor. Now that's dual opt in, and the way I'm the reason I have so many people review is because I want large enough numbers that out of the of fifteen people assign. Maybe 10 or 12 will return the scorecard of the three people that don't. Those that apologize are invited back. Uh, the others are quietly dropped. Um, or just, you know, they don't have to apologize. They just have to let me know that they can't read that round, even though they signed up for it. You know, people's kids get sick, whatever, fine, they're volunteering. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, and then of that, say, 12, right, or 10, remember we had uh, six would say, I'll do a one-time call, one will stay anonymous. And then three, two or three will say, I want to be a mentor. And of those two or three, the entrepreneur will say, she was really helpful, he was really helpful. They get two people to work with them. Right? They'll reach out to everybody who says they want to be a mentor, but they end up with, on average, one or two. So that's stage two. Stage three, uh, which we're about to start for our current round, is what I call the challenge calls, where each entrepreneur is given the opportunity to say, this is what I'm working on today. And then I will build a team. Folks will be on a conference call. Think of this as a live version of the business plan review. Except yeah. it's not about their whole business plan, it's about a specific challenge they're having right now. And then, so that'll happen. Uh, stage four is peer-to-peer, peer-to-non-competitive peer. So one of the best things, so we studied more than 8,000 reviewer to entrepreneur like scorecards and interactions. 
been doing this a long time. And founders want to talk to other founders more than anyone else, with the possible exception of people are about to give them a large sum of money in the near term. Because if I bring in a subject matter expert, they'll listen, but they'll be like, thanks for the marketing tips, but I got 18 other things to do. But if you connect them, so I had a call earlier in 2018, four women who had a couple of calls, but this is the easiest one to explain. Four women who run sustainable apparel companies in respectively Chile, Guatemala, Cambodia, and the US, making respectively scarves, boots, dresses, and underwear. And uh, who were one, two, five, uh, one, five, ten, and ten years old in terms of their companies, the entrepreneurs themselves were. That's, really impressive. Impressive. Um, That's very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, kids can do everything. Yeah. Well, that was my wife's other <laughs> days. We already covered that. Um, and so they can. So we, if we got up on stage and said, "Here are the secrets of our industry," we'd be unclear on the word secrets. But these four women, even though they're sourcing it, sourcing was different because they're sourcing different things, their distribution was the same, but they weren't competing against each other. Mm -hmm. So uh, they could have a conversation that was really useful. And, you know, they, they say they're going to meet up and all that. But, like, basically, we're, we're not, we're, we're setting that stuff up, but we're not, you know, like, we're, we're trying to create as many of these little groups these call them book clubs as you were um, and hope that they keep going but we're putting a lot of effort into making sure those are the right people at the first meeting yeah I run a dating site in essence and the fifth piece it's very similar I mean when I'm matching evaluators to the proposals it's that's it's very much uh, sometimes I even think like these two these two might date like maybe we could we'll start it off with a she reviews her his proposal We've had four marriages, although none, to the best of my knowledge, from people that You've I specifically put together. Four people, people have been through, they met, met through, through your program, I yeah. guess. I assume it's a I mean, we get you once you get like a lot of people, like doing stuff. People yeah. meet, and eventually they get married. Yeah. Um, the uh, and the fifth piece is the data, because what are you like? We've been collecting. We're reviewing, right? We've got the scorecards. Like I said, we've got more than eight thousand of them. So. And some of them have gone on to be funded companies. Yeah, well, so of our alumni. So I imagine you might be able to look into that and predict. Yeah. What so causes of our things alumni, to be, they, they've to get raised home. almost half a billion dollars, and they have almost half a billion. They have more than half a million dollars in annual revenue if you track them all. So technically, we've had a billion dollars in spin up. But so some of the things we've learned, because one of the goals is to try and figure out what kind of reviewers are better at predicting right. the yeah. success or failure of a company at the super early stage. Because it feels like that there are investment firms who would pay for this. In fact, it doesn't just feel like there are investment firms who would pay for this, but they want strong data, which is why I've been asking the same questions for more than a decade. I would actually like to change some of those questions, but in service to the great god of PhD discipline, I'm not the PhD, but I have a researcher who is, we ask the same questions. And uh, so there's no one industry amongst the top 40 people who so we track the company's success, and we look at how people reviewed them, scored them, and predicted would they be in business for a year, would they raise $100,000, whatever. So they ask a very simple set of easily measured things. Yeah, remember, sorry, it was, it was uh, what is your, the likelihood this company will raise 100000 over the next Hire non-founder employee. Hire an employee. Get licensed. Uh, there, there's, there are five very simple questions that are easily tracked, and then there's an overall success that's external. You didn't see it on the scorecard. 
but like Runa and Back to the Roots are clearly top, and then others are. We we compare their success against our measure. It's tricky. But of the top forty people, where like say if everybody gave it a five, that doesn't tell me anything about which reviewers are better. But if a bunch of people gave it a three, and a few people gave them fives, and that happened over and over again, it was the same few people. Those people would be better. Turns out the people that are better, there's almost nothing I can find so far that they have in common. But the people that are better at spotting companies that fail, there is. So we also look at the other way. If a whole bunch of people gave it a three, but a couple of people gave them ones, which is the low end on our scale. Of the people who are the best at spotting companies that will not make it, better than the other reviewers. Because remember, we've got thousands of also reviews. Useful. It's less exciting data, but oh, it's oh, also useful. From an investor's point of view, it's actually more exciting data. Yeah. Well, yeah. more, or I mean, it's very useful, equally yeah. useful to them. The profession that Honestly, you'd rather be, you'd rather be common. predicting winners than, than like if you could choose a superpower, the ability to predict winners or the ability to predict losers, like you probably predict, you probably want to predict winners. Realizing yeah, they both are useful, they but both are it's extremely useful to get the losers out of the pool. This, this is sorry. a superhero movie that should be made, right? Yeah. My super, I can predict that this company will not succeed. With a hundred percent. So I can tell you the profession of that person. <laughs> yeah, he, I assume uh, he's gonna be he's gonna be someone who's able to pass the bar exam and file things in federal court and such. Business law in the United States is the profession of risk assessment. Right, yeah, that's what they do for a living. The lawyers that I admit to having on retainer um, tell me how risky a thing is, not whether or not it's legal. And I've never I have never in my life had a lawyer be like, Oh yeah, you should do this. Well, I've had lawyers. This will succeed and it'll be great. Right, but I've had a lawyer say there are no there are no visible problems. And that's yeah. what I paid them to do. I've also yeah. had lawyers say, say there's no you know you're a moron, right? Yeah. And then they say why? Oh, you're and going I to paid them a couple hundred dollars. Oh, you're definitely going to jail. Well no no no, it's not that. Just they tell me all they the can, time. They can they can the other Oh, oh this is very illegal, well, Dave. <laughs> well then Dave, you should not do this in front of a mic. I leave I, I am merely late. told the other person will have an advantage in the contract. That's why I, I run these things by lawyers first. It's not. It's not illegal to ask. <laughs> yeah, uh, they keep changing Siri when the response is, "Where do I hide a body?" To like the okay. Siri would tell. One of the things is I came to DC from uh, Maine. Right, Maine has very few lawyers per capita. DC has, I think, the highest number of, yeah. close to the highest number of lawyers per capita. It, it may, DC has the highest. Number is it of literally lawyers. the highest? Yeah. And Maine might well, very, for, might very also, well be close DC to the bottom. DC has roughly the population of Maine, right? Like, oh, yeah. that's not true. Maine has twice the population of DC. Yeah, I guess that's about right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I'm sure there's more lawyers here. Uh, I'm absolutely. I'm sure there's probably one firm here that has more lawyers than than Maine. At least, well, what law is there to? Like, yeah, sure there are lawyers some, who work in stuff. Boston who live in Maine. Yeah, yeah. I think we. Yeah, no. When we, if it's serious, it's our lawyers. The lawyers come up from Boston, uh, right? Or they, sometimes they live in Maine, hire a Boston lawyer, yeah. and come back. I, I'm pretty sure that the, 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 the regardless, mostly law in Maine is like defending DUI folks. Like that ah. is, Right, the vast I'm majority talking about of the law business and contract law and finance what, law. And what, we, in this country, a lot of things are so like in Maine. I never had. I actually never really had cause for for an attorney. Like I never had an issue where it rose. Right, and, and uh, you move to DC though, and like it, this stuff comes up all the time. Uh, I think uh, you know why you never stand in a corner. Hmm? Why is that? If they pull you in for hypothetically a DUI, they stand you in a corner. You don't want to do that. You want to stand against a flat wall. Because there's cameras everywhere in the police station, and if you're in the corner, they can very easily see you sway. Hmm. 
But I mean, they're about to give you the breathalyzer, which is a little bit more definitive. Yeah. Anyway, uh, next time I get to, uh, I don't have a driver's license anymore, so I can just be as drunk as I want. And, well, not, not as drunk as I want. But, uh, I'm not worried about DUI. It's one of the great, yeah. the great advantages of uh, getting rid of the driver's license. We've strayed uh, a little bit. The point is, is that when I moved down here into D.C., you find yourself with occasions to meet a lawyer in law office. And one of the things I learned, very, very useful thing, is you can call the your local bar association, the referral line, right? Uh, and they usually connect you, give you the, your first half hour uh, with a lawyer for, for free. The bar association will cover the cost of initial referrals. And I actually tell, every time we have uh, a nonprofit or a group that comes through, they give a legal question, since I'm not a lawyer. Thompson Reuters. Yeah, tell they're them about awesome. if it's a serious issue that they like are going to need a. I definitely know they're going to. But need you want it on so the 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 the, the, pro, the, the if pros you, and cons of one question lawyer. to That's like right. if you have like one question to get answered, you like the bar association does this like referral program. They do it in almost every. You just call your local bar. You're like, hey, I have a legal question I'd like to answer. You get and they pay for you to get like a lawyer on the phone who will like usually just answer your one question. He they do it because you know I'm sure they get hired yeah. uh, sometimes. Right? Or, or just a general civic duty, but I've actually never hired a lawyer through that. Uh, like every time I have a problem with a landlord or something like that, right? You can I just call the bar association referral service, and I've told I've told nonprofits this. Right? Sometimes though they're going to have a long term issue to deal with, right? And Thompson Reuters is best of the best. Um, well, no, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that okay. because they're they're great. You can get real firms for that. Great place to start. So the challenge with pro bono law is you want. So one of the things I'm often telling entrepreneurs who don't want to spend money in lawyers and accountants, and I would also tell this to people starting nonprofits, is get an, an accountant or a lawyer who is with you for the long term. You don't have to use them a lot, right? Like download the document from the internet mm -hmm. and, and fill in the forms. Don't pay your lawyer to write it. Pay your lawyer to read it. Mm -hmm. But have the same lawyer and accountant over the years so as your organization grows, there's someone who has historical context. Yep. If you use the pro bono shops, they're often very good at one-offs, but then you won't necessarily get the same lawyer or accountant the next time. This and is important. To, yeah, and you want somebody who, but you, if you're starting out, you can't necessarily afford uh, a high-end or even a medium or low-end lawyer or accountant, depending on what you're doing. Yeah, or any kind of DC lawyer. Right. Uh, but you could, so like, I will download legal documents, stick my name in where the form says to, and then, if it's a contract, I will then pay somebody to review it to make sure that I mm -hmm. didn't mess anything up. Yes. Uh, rather than pay them to write it. Because this if is I how pay we them did, to write it, they're going to do the same thing. This is how we did our 1023 for our 501c3 application. I filled it out, and then I paid a lawyer to review it before we submitted it. And it turned out, right, good thing I did that, because I yeah. did not fill it out correctly. Right? And there was like a bunch of other steps Your that name I didn't isn't even... Your Susan yet. Yeah, you still have to put in the... <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, I filled out the form mostly, right? It's just that there was, like, a bunch of, there's a bunch of other, like, and then you have to and other, right? And I never would have known about, like, the, um, like, the, some of the local filings we had to do and some other stuff. But, uh, there's a lot of paperwork for a nonprofit. I'm sure a business as well. Uh, so, uh, this next round, uh, we will be uh, co-reviewing, uh, so to speak. And, um, right, I, I, I've been meaning to have you in the booth, right, to chat, right? Because we're both working in such... Um, Similar spaces, but now is the perfect time for you to be in here because uh, we do have um, uh, this plan coming up. One of the issues that uh, we have had is uh, we are, uh, I think, uh, very good and designed to deal with folks who are trying to get their first big grant from a foundation. It's a very good 
fit for us. We are designed to be able to give feedback to anyone who's trying to raise any money for any sort of social change project. In fact, I think we could give feedback to someone who doesn't even need money, right? Like if they were trying to do an all-volunteer, completely unfunded program, right, and they wanted feedback from experts on how to execute it, we would give feedback on that. It's not always about money for us, but it, it, it usually is. Right? And usually that's trying to get your first grant from a foundation. We do have some folks, right, who would love a grant from a foundation, right, but they're what, what, the more likely place for them to uh, raise money is from a angel investor or venture capital, or sometimes from foundations, but more likely from the impact investing division of the foundations. They are increasingly uh, making investments in Program programs, that, investments. programs that they previously would have given grants to. Or, uh, yeah, uh, right, there's program-related investments, and then there's also like their the so like Ford has they've divested everything from uh, oil. Uh, and other things, and other foundations, I'm well, sure, so, will start to follow. So there's, there's mission-related investments and program-related investments. Program-related investments is a specific legal term that means a specific thing. In the U.S., with the current tax law, you, if you are a nonprofit foundation, in order to maintain your nonprofit status, you have to give, not a private, but a public foundation, you have to give away 5% of your assets every year. That's for the private, that's the G section of the 501c3 yeah. tax code. Right. Moss and Family Foundation was previously Right. So PRIs come out of that. A mission-related investment. And it counts towards your 5%? Yes. How new is that? Mm, 40 years. Really? Okay. Now, what happened was, uh, for the first 20 or so years of PRIs, I think this is a Nixon thing, um, but I could be wrong. We can look that up. Somebody here has a phone in the internet. Um, but uh, the uh, it was mostly low-cost housing, because the rules for a PRA, you want me to explain the difference between MRI and a PRI? Rules for PRI and magnetic resonating. resonating Actually, image. technically, that is an right, NMRI, is a nuclear magnetic resonating in image. But they took the N off because they used to panic people. Yeah, so, I'm getting one on Friday, and it that was yeah <laughs> started uh, So the two I's were the last I stands for investment. A program related <laughs> investment comes from a U.S. foundation. I mean, there are versions of this in other countries, but not many. And this is what the PRI means. For and they would have to if they're in a different country, they follow different laws. Yeah. Uh, so I'm only speaking of the U.S. law, and I am not a lawyer, but I often play one on stage. And podcasts. Yeah, where it is actually technically one of the only professions where it is fully illegal to... Yeah, anyways. Um, <laughs> comes out of the 5% that they have to give away, but it must meet the following conditions. Essentially, it has to be an investment that the market, the regular investment community, would not make. So it has to either be too risky or too low return. Now, low return is easy to measure. So most of the history of PRIs is in low-cost housing. So uh, Enterprise and LISC would often negotiate uh, local initiative support coalition and Enterprise Jubilee Housing. LISC is a very big operation. Yeah. Uh, Those are the operation. two biggest operations in terms of financing. Not, they're not builders. Well, I mean, they have building divisions. but It's, it's, a, large it's, a, fund that, it's a large fund that does its 5% through PRIs. No, they're not foundations. Oh. They're the intermediary to make it happen. Um, so They do have a ton of money, though. Yeah. If you were putting up low-cost housing and, and you wanted uh, an investment in your project and you could go to a foundation, a grant-making foundation, an endowment foundation, and say, can you loan us X money at less than market rate so that we can build it and we can have Y units for people who make less than a third of the median? That was, the, that was an easy way to do a PRI, and that was how most PRIs happened until about a decade ago. 
uh, about two decades ago, people realized the way the law was written, they could also invest in super risky stuff, but this is the world of endowment foundations. So the word super risky and endowment foundations didn't really overlap. Run that by your board. Yeah. Hey, this is a super risky investment I'd like to make. Yeah. So <laughs> around the turn of the century, the MacArthur Foundation actually owned a piece of Tesla, an investment they could not make today. Well, all right, maybe today would be super risky again. But a couple of years <laughs> ago, um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, not so much. Um, but in 2000, Tesla was a super risky arrangement. Um, and but it met their it, it has to meet their mission right so it has to be an enterprise where there's a social and environmental goal that is mission aligned with the foundation. So the MacArthur Foundation, who is responsible for creating a more peaceful, just, and verdant world, isn't that the? I'm, I think I'm probably required to say that now. Yeah. Uh, they helped buy these microphones and such. Uh, I'm also very sure that they're not listening. <laughs> they can't possibly listen to all the podcasts that the grantees produce. And if they do, thanks for tuning in. Uh, but they so you, they made a PRI into Tesla? Well, into a fund for environmental companies in around the turn of the century. Uh, and then what happened is people started to look at can they use PRIs to do early stage investing? Because one of the things where my world and your over world don't overlap as much, although your world some, is super early stage is often not a fit for, like, the first stage of, not a fit for, for like a for-profit company is not angel investors. The first stage for a for-profit company is called Friends, Family, and Fools. Well, it used to be called Friends, Family, and Fools, but it has been renamed Friends, Family, and Crowdfunding. Um, unfortunately, none of the crowdfunding companies started with an F or they would have found themselves fool with Fool funding. Yeah. That's yeah, close no. to accurate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and this is from the days when crowdfunding was essentially an end run around paying sales tax, right? Because you would pre-order a product, and because of the way it was funded, you didn't pay sales tax. You do oh. now, or you're supposed to now. You don't actually often do, but you're supposed to. The laws are changing. Yeah. Um, Kickstarter was fully. I have a friend who actually went to jail for doing exactly How to buy Kickstarter and not pay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mission-related investment is what some of the bigger foundations, led by Luther Reagan and the F.B. Heron Foundation from about 15 years ago, but is now catching on. Judd Emerson did a lot of work in this area. Um, where their corpus, the 95%, which they are legally obligated to you be... You said corpus. Yes. They are le it's one of my favorite... It's my favorite word for a large pile of money. Yeah. Uh, they, they are legally obligated to be prudent, um, though it's the foundation world, so we don't want to call it so much the prudent man rules. The, the duty of care, the duty of obedience, and the duty of loyalty. I forget. There's specific, very specific instructions from the IRS on... Basically, you have to do what an ordinarily prudent investor would do. And you have to put the mission of the organization first. And right. But something. The, this oh, and, you can't, and you can't hold back information that would benefit the organization. This. Sorry, I should have talked over you. Um, <laughs> even more so. Sorry. You were the guest. Yeah, but we're recording this, so I'm just making that a pain in the ass for you. Um, <laughs> Well, I'll talk over you because you're Dave. But uh, you won't be the first. We had Carpentchoff on the show once, and I think he just talked the entire time. I was done. Did he fire his machine gun? <laughs> no, this was before he had invented the, the world's. Greatest. We have a friend who invented a machine gun for use in movies. Um, yes, it, great. He's doing really well. Yeah, it's one of the better on-screen machine guns. <laughs> so we're told because we've done a comparative study. <laughs> Anyways, an MRI has no legal meaning, so a foundation can call something a mission-related investment. Right. A PRI, can, uh, the IRS can challenge a PRI, like it has a specific thing. An MRI 
is when the foundation says, okay, we're no longer going to invest in tobacco companies, so we're going to put our money here, which may be some other company, which may or may not be any more or less socially beneficial. Now, an MRI could be an honest and sincere MRI, or it could just be marketing, but there is no legal weight to the term. Either way, very few of the companies we deal with will receive any money from a foundation's corpus. Hmm. Right? Because you're talking, when you apply for grants, it's often out of the 5%, unless they're in a spending. The MRI would be larger blue chip companies. That right. Just it's aren't publicly evil. traded. Or yeah. aren't, like, so like Ford used to do climate change grants, yeah. and then in the corpus was Exxon, Chevron, BP. Right. And, and like, huge part of the over right. 50% of the Yeah, the Gates business. Foundation used to invest in uh, tobacco when they were also doing, I mean, they, they like, I don't think they were. But they, by the time they started the foundation, it was well known that tobacco kills a lot of people. Yeah. And they were like, well, we'll, we'll why it was probably already in that. Well, also, there's like donated. these index funds. Like it's it's comp when you're when you're talking at yeah, that it's level, it's hard. Or when you're investing in big, big I'll companies. give somebody for a pass if it's in the index fund or whatever. But if they're like directly yeah. invested in R.J. Reynolds, I just don't understand how well, anybody would. Altria, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, and, sure. Um, I mean, plenty of bad companies that are doing the opposite of what the foundation's grants are doing. Yeah. Or and you know it's a hard call, but that's a whole separate world, and that's not the world we're playing. We're playing in helping people get started. Me, me our, none of our applicants are ever going to get those things. Yeah, so we're... Um, maybe, uh, maybe, but not, not soon. Ian's currently having an issue with his phone. <laughs> you got it all set there? Uh, yes, I like to make crackling noises while I'm on a podcast. Uh, that's um, good. He's got his phone assembled and put to the side. And apparently he turned it on by accident. I spilled the beer. Um... Kate, but, Kate is every now and then. Uh, Kate starts working in Asana, and I get like a bunch of things assigned to me all at once. That's what's happening now. Tasks are being assigned. All right, to so me. so back, back <laughs> to our topic. So what we have decided to do, what we what we are doing, the reason we are having this podcast, and the reason we've been hanging out more, other than you know our our general good cheer with each other, it's been a, it's been an absolute hoot. Yes, is the realization that we are providing similar services. Mm -hmm. To folks, uh, the tagline, got a plan for a better world? Written it down. So, like, literally, the front page of my website, I believe we call these home pages, in the, starting some point in the 1990s, um, my internet site on the on-ramp, the, the, the internet on-ramp or whatever it was called. Internet superhighway? On-ramp? I don't know. The superhighway. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> World Wide Web. Yeah. says, uh, www, the only shorthand that actually takes as long to say as the thing, mm -hmm. or HTTP. WWW, I remember I used to say that, so WWW, you get so good at like... Just we are providing services to folks who want to make the world a better place, and the first stage in our programs, mine goes on for several other stages, yours is in the process of, of developing several other stages, and hopefully we can work together on that, is taking their business plan or grant and reviewing it. So this looks a lot alike. I often get a lot of folks who are running nonprofits who apply because they didn't read our website very closely um, or because grantsforyourbusiness.com sent them to us and every year I call <laughs> Business Funding USA and Grants for Business and I say, please take us off your list and they don't. Um, so now the front of my are website... There any, uh, I'm curious, are there any nonprofits who are like, well, we think it's possible that we might be able to play in this space? So we'll get to that. So the simple one is, if you're a for-profit, the Mentor Capital Network uh, could review your business plan. Now, we don't accept everybody because we don't have the capacity to accept everybody, but we accept a lot of companies. 
and it's we're, we're as a nonprofit ourselves that supports for profits. Our fundraising is hilarious. <laughs> you give your money to what? Um, uh, <laughs> my landlord. But anyways, um, the uh, we support for profit social enterprises. The unfunded list supports people who are writing grants to foundations and other people who traditionally give money to 501c3s. You could do more, but you've got to focus. We could do more, but we've got to focus. Uh, but because it's the similar kind of people. Now, there's a third button on my website. So button A says, if for-profit, click on the Mentor Capital Network. If not-for-profit, see our friends at the unfunded list. Ask them for a beer. Uh, it doesn't actually say that, but it could. You can always ask. Um, uh, we, get enough, <laughs> we get enough entries from countries. I ran a foundation for a really long time, so I'm very good at saying no to yeah. requests and staying friends. Yes. Um, <laughs> Thank you for thinking of me <laughs> for this beer donation at sure. this time. That's what you said. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, the third button says, other or not sure. Now, there's a whole host out there. There's some obvious others, so we will take companies as long as there's a for-profit tax ID. It could be owned by a nonprofit. We are very comfortable with benefit corporations. Uh, we are very comfortable with common good enterprises, with all these sort of hybrid organizations, which could fit in both. And there are for-profit companies um, and nonprofits that apply for contracts. Right? You get in this weird space where a government has a contract that is essentially a grant, but could go to either a nonprofit or for-profit. So you have entities set up to do that, and it doesn't really matter. Like what tax status you are is dependent on a whole bunch of stuff, but it's not a requirement. Um, and then we've got folks who aren't sure, yes. and we are working together to come up with guidelines for if you have a plan to create an entity that you think will make the world a better place, should it be for profit? Should it be nonprofit? That's a whole separate podcast that we should actually probably do, <laughs> right? But that's a legitimate question that a lot of folks I have. Of the 20 largest companies that have, in terms of funds raised, that have come through our program since 2005, three or four of them are nonprofits now. The One Acre Fund started as a for profit, mm -hmm. it's a nonprofit. It's a nonprofit. You know, hospitals offer nonprofits and their, their administrators and top uh, surgeons. Harvard's, a, Harvard's a nonprofit. They got, yeah. they're doing the NFL everything. is a nonprofit, although it shouldn't be. They're not really. I actually was thinking about writing a. This is a kind of a pet peeve of mine. The uh, so the the NFL Association uh, of uh, League Owners used to be a five hundred one c six, which is close to being a nonprofit. Actually, the current commissioner, whose name escapes me at the moment, didn't want a salary of public, so they got rid of even that. All the individual teams are for profit, and the league of oh, teams. one exception. The NF is one of the teams a nonprofit. One of the teams is owned by its municipality. Because I mean, a sports league, a sports team, and a sports league definitely can be nonprofits. No, so there's one team in professional football, little league teams and stuff that are nonprofits. That is owned by the city, and because of the way that it was initially funded, if it is ever sold, that money must go to build a World War One monument. It has to go to the charitable, the original charitable mission of the. Right. City. I'm not sure that you know the the several hundred million dollars that the Green Bay Packers are worth at this point. Uh, would build one hell of a World War One statue. I think they might give it to someone in the twelve. But the Green Bay Packers. That's fascinating. I'll have to look is, into that. I don't know if it's still majority owned, but it is. It is certainly significantly owned by the city of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, very interesting. 
Uh, I got for uh, a city that, whose population doubles for home games. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, they were generous donors to the It's On Us campaign. They ran our PSA on their Jumbotron, which was once the largest Jumbotron in the world. And that's a record that gets set like, basically every week, as far as I can tell. People just keep building larger and larger screens. Uh, so, uh, I think we're uh, running out of beer, so uh, we will uh, begin to wrap up. Uh, but uh, for this next round of review, we both have uh, the same deadline of March 15th. And the same application fee? And the same application fee of $100. And if you are... For, for mine, because so many of my entrants are from not from the U.S., uh, if you are from what the U.N. regards as the least developed country, the application fee is $25. The, the general application fee is 50 And if you're from one of the OCED countries like the U.S. or Western Europe, the application fee is $100. So, uh, it's and I, I, was, I don't have a uh, we don't have a firm established policy on that. Uh, but if you are from, uh, if you have special circumstances, right? Like you're from Liberia, and hundred dollars is a fortune for you. Uh, contact us, and I'm sure we can work it out. Yeah. So we, for for us, yeah, we don't make a lot of money on the application fee. And in fact, if we don't accept you, we refund the application fee. So it's not really. It's more of a processing fee. We just want need you to pay it before you. Actually, submit the paper. It's mostly about making sure that they are serious. Yeah. That's the main I, I once paid twenty dollars out of my own pocket to refund fifteen dollars or to collect fifteen dollars from a librarian. Uh, it's about uh, we found that if you don't charge a fee, you get fewer and lower quality applicants. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, we, as a result, charging the fee. I'm I'm pleased to sponsor charging the fee. We get everything we get is very very good because who would no one's gonna pay hundred bucks for a review if it's unless they yeah. really written unless they've actually really challenging something and they really want and they're gonna be passionate about it. Uh, one of the things that has been trouble, that tricky for me, right, is, um, right, so I don't, uh, I don't have a hard and fast requirement. You have to be a nonprofit. That's who we do best with. Uh, I, I, we have um, done a pretty good job of uh, reviewing uh, for-profit companies. Um, you can, uh, this round, uh, and hopefully going on in the future, apply to either program. At one point, right, we're gonna, you and I are gonna read the proposals. Uh, and uh, get together and decide uh, and sort of maybe do some swapping, right? The, these guys would do really well for your program, right? These guys would do well in both, right? These guys, uh, not so much for this one, this one, right? Uh, and so if you are out there, you're not sure if you're going to be a for-profit business that raises money from, right, uh, PRI. Well, if you're going to be a for-profit business, uh, the term raises money. So we're looking at business plans. We're looking at folks who are early stage. You don't have to be at the raising money stage. Right, so the best the best source of funds is always a customer. The best way to fund your company is never to take outside debt or equity. <laughs> However, many companies require outside debt or equity at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, I am not a huge fan of the venture capital model. The whole high tech, you know, we're going to pick ten companies and one of them must be Google in order for the others to make it worth it when they fail. Um, but we, so we, and because we're so international, we work with a lot of companies that will have a two or three X return, not a 10 or 15 or 20 X return. We work with some that might do that. Like I have a company right now that is, uh, it's a water filter that's five pesos for 50 liters. They, if they hit, they are going to, they're literally going to have a billion customers. Like that's going to be one of the biggest companies in the world. Sure, so, uh, we so saw several of the companies that we saw early on have gone on to raise 25, 50, hundred million dollars. Um, and are operating worldwide at giant scale. But we also have a couple hundred alumni that are employing 10, 20, 50 people that are, you know, have annual revenues between the one and five million range um, that are still, that they've never, 
They've never raised money from someone they didn't know beforehand. So I am, uh, the Mentor Capital Network is totally comfortable with companies that are just building for-profit operations that have a, you know, you gotta build, so the reason we asked for a business plan as opposed to a pitch deck. A pitch deck is a specific document for a specific investor at a specific point in time. A grant application is a pitch deck, right? It's designed for a specific target. Um, Slightly more specific. If you do a pitch deck right, it's for one particular investor. Most people The average don't. pitch deck is less specific than the average grant. You are correct. But, <laughs> but there, it doesn't have to be. Yes. Uh, but a business plan is something you write for yourself that you revisit every year. It's dynamic. Dynamic. And Updated it changes. Change. So you look at it a year later, or six months, or 18 months, or whatever. And then if nothing has changed, we call Ripley's Believe It or Not. And then I, I point out that mm -hmm. you're not actually right, and I find the change. <laughs> uh, but the question is, did it change on purpose? Did you find a new market opportunity? Did you something change? Did it change because you couldn't accomplish some of the things you wanted to do? Did it change because you just forgot to do the thing you meant to do? Or, as is the case of many nonprofits and social enterprises, did it change because of mission drift? Did somebody say, hey, look, there's this sparkly thing over here? I found a shiny thing, everyone. Yes, I found a sparkly thing. <laughs> Um, or a spang, the small spangle. Um, or no, a spangle is a small spang. It's a singular. Spangle is plural. Um, yeah, I, I'm reading a book on etymology. Uh, One spang to yeah. a spangle. Actually, no, spangle is a small spang. I'm, li I'm literally reading a book on etymology. People mix up etymology and etymology all the time. It bugs me. But um, the uh, bravo, not original, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I'm gonna get every now and then I get an email about these podcasts and I think I may get some <laughs> puns will do it they've been like listen yeah, I'm just writing along two and actual <laughs> professional and skills a pun. I'm, a, I'm a transcript speed <laughs> typist and I'm an improv comic and for those of you you've been in there, one of those pun competitions yes I have those are terrific those entertain the bejesus I'm very bad at puns they just it never comes naturally to me but like people who can do that really well in those pun competitions it's so impressive so my contribution uh, the, the theme was Christmas and everybody on stage had to make a Christmas pun or, or a December holiday pun right um, and thank you well no <laughs> I, I went even further than that so everybody went around and you couldn't repeat right so some people had the practice ones like Rudolph the red nosed reindeer right like the ones from the joke book 25 um, and um some people were making stuff up, and when it got to me, uh, I said, see that uh, attractive young lady in the corner dressed like the devil? That's Satyrlanelia. I feel pretty comfortable the... that nobody else had used either that holiday or that joke. <laughs> <laughs> and like that's the, I just did the like standard reaction to puns. It's always like, Phew. that's the sound you make <laughs> in response to a good pun. Ugh. It makes you. It's a. It's like the only time in my life I ever groan, and it's not. It sounds like I didn't like it, but it, that's that's what that means. I did like it. I groaned. Yeah, how many do. German shepherds do you actually think are German shepherds? <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I've known many a Great Dane, but some of them were just average. I got a really friendly friend who's a who's a treasure hunter. We call him the Golden Retriever. I can do this all day. Give me a topic, but that's not the topic we're on the podcast about. No, no, no. And I, and, I, and I do believe that you can go all day. Uh, but instead, I think we'll you know, to try to bring this to a close. So uh, at the absolute highest level, if you have a plan to make the world better and you've written it down, 
you are definitely a fit for one or both of our programs. Right. Right. Uh, beyond that, things start to get granular and specific. Whether you're going down the for-profit route or the non-profit route or the hybrid. Route. So one of the tricky things but, we oh go on. But our applicants don't have they don't necessarily have to have that figured out, right? Right. Uh, if they if they've got it figured out, you know you're definitely for profit. You apply to the Metro Capital Network, and that's very straightforward. If you know you're definitely uh, nonprofit, you apply to the unfunded list. I can't promise that we're not going to disagree with what you've already figured out, but uh, like if you've got it set, like that's how you, that's how you do it. If you're unsure, right, apply to either program. At one point, we are in March. We're going to get together, read them all, figure out which one should go in the right place. Make sure all the proposals get all the care. All the proposals are business plans. All the proposals that we choose to accept. Uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so and every, and read grantsforyourbusiness.com that have no business. Um, the So one of the challenges... You're not a fan of grantsforyourbusiness.com. Or any of these sort of generic find money for your business. At least it's the way that they impact my organization because I get all yeah, sorts absolutely. of... Yeah, absolutely. It's bad. no social so impact bad. whatsoever. Perfectly fine business. I got nothing against it, but whatever. We had one, as one of the first guests... Actually, the very first guest we had on Wine Grants was Matthew Lesko. You know, Matthew Lesko, mm-hmm. the get money from the yeah, government. Yeah, he interviewed there. me. Uh, did he? Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, so he's a... Uh, he's got the question marks on his face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of people know him for that. They know him as like a sort of a clownish type figure. The man is actually like an absolute genius when it comes to getting money from the government. There's very few people who like know more about like all of the various government programs and stuff. One of his like real like pet peeves that gives him agita these days uh, is the Google results for all of this stuff, right? So like I, I'm sure Grants for Your Business shows up if you Google Grants for Your Business. But as you just pointed out, it does not actually help you get grants for your business. Well, it might. It's just I'm not the right place for a lot of these people to go. So for 14 years, we were the first, most of the first three pages in the entirety of the first page for social uh, social business plan competition or social enterprise business plan competition. And then we switched okay. servers. So it wasn't about SEO. It was being on the same server since 2004. Well, that lowers your authenticity. Yeah, and then in 2016, we switched. Uh, so they have really arbitrary stuff like that. Yeah. Switching servers is something that companies do. Yeah. It doesn't make you act. It doesn't actually make you less authentic. So a real, <laughs> a real issue is what's the document people should submit. Mm-hmm. So for you, it's it's simpler because the foundation often has a very specific format. So they're submitting the thing that they actually submitted based on the foundation's format. We do have in our frequently asked questions post. We do have an outline for what the like what the the best proposal for us looks like. Uh, we will review whatever they have written down. So I run into this because my reviewers would like to see some standard things included, but I would, I would really like to have the actual document you use because if you wrote a document to enter our program, yes, it is the feedback that we give you is not helpful. It has to be the document that you are actually using to Same. plan your business. We have to say sometimes they change their grant proposal and they'll like remove the name of the foundation and replace it with unfunded list and stuff. And, 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 and same, we would just please send us one. That's the way we would rather you save that time. I'm sure you have very, if you, you had those 10 minutes, you could have been spent doing something else. Uh, but we're, you know, we know you apply, we, we know you're applying to other programs. <laughs> well, you don't know, you're not, you're not a, you're not a fund source. Yeah, we're we not, have, and we're not a fund source. We used to have so prizes worth between fifteen hundred thousand uh, dollars 30, 40 in cash, and then the rest in professional services. We would get rid of it. We would rather get people who are, I mean, we have a few prizes. They, once there's a thank you very much prize. to the Foundation for Sustainable Future and Suresh Kamana. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, but we, we um, but mostly it's for people like folks from Mozambique, Liberia, or Bolivia for whom like five grand's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, there are folks in the That's US. That's a lot of money for a lot of people. 
Yeah, we plenty of advice in the repair industry in Mozambique. I will take five. I will take five thousand. Yeah, so will I. But uh, oh, like for a back, like so one of the challenges I had a couple years ago is the foundation gave us um, twenty thousand dollars to give away, twenty five thousand dollars to give away, and um, for a mid level renewable energy company, and they wanted a company that was far enough along that they actually had proof of concept and they they deployed, but was building a technology that wasn't an app, but that was an actual physical thing. And we couldn't find anyone who cared because the people who wanted the 25 grand were too early for the foundation. And the people who had working installed equipment, 25 grand was like a week's burn. We ended up finding with someone who had gotten a grant from the federal government that needed a one to six match. So mm -hmm. like if they could get $30,000, they random. could get 180. Um, and they loved us because they, then they just put the, I think they put the rest of the five grand in their pocket, and like we were twenty five, and then it ended up they got two hundred some odd thousand dollars out of it. Terrific. Uh, so that worked. That was great leverage. Um, was uh, when you were giving money at the end of the program, that it's your applicants really only see that. Like, uh, yeah, I've we we, we are never a mentoring a grant. program. We've we, never given a grant, and I think we will probably never will. Even if someone, if I if a donor came along and said, hey. I want to give grants to everyone on the unfunded list. I would say, please wait until I announce the unfunded list and give the grants to them directly. Yeah, I don't want it to be part of our program. Uh, here's the problem I had around that. Uh, I find it moderately easy to raise money to give to other people. I find it difficult to raise money to cover the time of my team to actually identify mm -hmm. and support and connect and maintain relationships with these people. At the moment. That is not something the like philanthropic sector understands writ large. Uh, we've had a you can do overhead well or poorly, but if you just attack overhead for the sake of it being overhead, I'm not. I'm not a fan. You can do overhead poorly. Yes. I, I will freely admit that people who do overhead poorly. Why well, is it just as it like we don't fund overhead? Can we overhead get another case of champagne in here, by the way? <laughs> uh, it's the MacArthur champagne, right? <laughs> now the uh, the light the lightning list did come from near where the MacArthur office is. As I understand, the brewer, the Lagunas Brewery, is nearby, um, but these are separate, separate donor relationships. Oh, right, to Chicago. I know the. Pedal yeah, most of it. I've never, been, I've actually never been to Chicago, and now my main beer donor and also my main dollar bills donor are located there. And so perhaps I should. Uh, marks the end of today's donated beer. I want to thank you very much for sitting in what is basically a closet with me for a little while, uh, and having a really interesting conversation. Seventy minutes in heaven. <laughs> oh, we get market to crack up for good. <laughs> no, but this has been very. This has been a fantastic conversation. The, a lot of these, uh, uh, not that we've answered any questions, but uh, a lot of uh, folks who apply to, I'm sure both of our programs are wondering and interested in asking about some of this stuff. And and I'll say, uh, even I, who spent a lot of time thinking about our funding and such works, I and I've already had the chance to talk to you about a lot of these things a bunch of times. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, in this episode, so I really want to thank you for stopping by, uh, sharing your considerable knowledge with us. Look forward to working with you on this next round. Again, if you've got a idea to make the world a better place and you've written it down, then you are a fit for one or both of our programs. MentorCapitalNet.org. So the end of the email is literally net.org. Uh, and unfundedlist.com. Uh, we've both got our application, our applications are up. Uh, currently accepting proposals. Uh, looking forward to reviewing what you've written for all of us. Uh, Ian, do you have any closing remarks for the folks? 
I think we're good. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Thank you. Uh, thanks to everybody at home for listening. As always, hi, Mom. Thanks for listening to the end. Uh, and thank you to uh, the Lagunitas Brewing Company for uh, these delicious IPAs. Uh, and to our listeners, good luck with your funding.